0: Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of Scripture. Welcome, fellow addicts. This is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today?
1: Today, we are continuing to work our way through the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 31. Last week, we saw where Jesus was staying at Simon Peter's house. Lots of crowds were coming to see him, listen to his teachings, and we had the story of this paralytic man that was being carried by, we assume, some of his close friends. Um, And we saw the great links of their faith uh, that Jesus was capable of doing these great and powerful things with his kingdom ministry, uh, even. Going as far as to breaking through Simon Peter's roof to lower the man down so that Jesus could have <laughs> yeah. an interaction with the man in hopes to be healed. Jesus saw their faith, and instead of, like in the previous miracles with him, responding by saying, Your faith is like ready for this, like experience the healing, he, in a provocative way, responds instead by saying, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Uh, and it it led us into this really great discussion, especially with why the Pharisees, the people, the Jewish leadership were taking such offense of that, uh, because we, we know now, and especially within the first century Judaism, that being able to heal someone and being able to forgive someone's sins came alone from God himself, yeah. and it was indicating that he was... Suggesting that he had this intimate relation or source from God by saying that, and I love this comment uh that we sort of ended with where you said that the source of power and authority that enabled him to heal was the very same source that could forgive, and therefore Jesus was indicating that he had the authority here on earth to forgive sins as well as heal yeah. uh, and you know we saw where he He did wind up showing the healing. Uh, And then we ended the story for last week with Jesus calling Matthew the tax collector and a lot of the uh, very controversial things of being a Jewish tax collector in a first century Roman-occupied Jerusalem.
0: Oh, yeah. Not something you want to be. No. But apparently he did, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we need to go in and find out what happened. Yeah, it's a really good cliffhanger. Yeah. All right. So, we're going to begin I guess continuing the story with Matthew, the tax collector and Jesus and the other uh disciples. We're going to be reading in uh Matthew chapter 9 verses 10 through 13, Mark chapter 2 verses 15 to 17, and Luke chapter 5 verses 29 to 32. And I think I'm going to go ahead and read from Luke, although there is a little bit from Matthew that I kind of want to throw in there also because it's a It's a good little tidbit. So here we go from Luke chapter 5. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay. Well, you know what? Let me go ahead and read the little bit from Matthew rather than save it for later. We'll just get it out there. Uh, I'm reading now from Matthew chapter 9 verse 13, where he adds this other little bit go and learn what this means i desire mercy and not sacrifice for i came not to call the righteous but sinners so he slips that little dig in there and we'll we'll talk about that when we get to it so anyway here you go you got this new disciple matthew levi the tax collector and one thing that we note here is that he appears to be doing pretty well financially yeah Seems to be. Here's the thing though, Samuel. This probably means that he did his job pretty well. Which also means he probably wasn't a good guy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. If you're a good tax collector and you're you're rich, okay, you're probably not a good guy. And at least, you know, pre-Jesus, we're expecting all of that to change for him. But then you also have to think, what has he done? He's made this decision to leave all of it and follow Jesus, like the, the, the ordinary practical things, like his job and, and the money associated with it, for sure, all that. But he's also, he's got to be choosing to leave his ways. I mean, if we're saying well, he probably wasn't a very good guy, well, he's choosing to leave that, to become a good guy. He's a disciple now, and uh, Samuel uh, what's that little phrase that we always use when we talk about disciples? Do you remember? I uh, know that they do, a, a student does everything they can to mimic the teacher or the master. Yeah. Radical imitation. It's a big deal. and And it's important because this is a really important image for both the evangelist kind of a person and the evangelized kind of a person. It's good for both. If the evangelist is only calling people to, you know, agree or acknowledge or assent to some ideas or, you know, whatever, he's actually doing people a great disservice. Because if the evangelized doesn't actually understand that what he's getting into is literally laying down his entire life taking up a new one defined by god god's will god's instructions if he doesn't if he doesn't understand that well how is he supposed to end up bearing the fruits of righteousness or being counted among those that belong to him or whatever he's just walking around and i'll just use the word ignorant he has no idea what's required of him all he knows is hey hey i'm saved and that is a that is wrong it's wrong to do that to people and so we need to see that in this, in Matthew's story. It's another great,
1: beautiful tension within the Jewish faith of it not being exclusively one or the other, but it's a combination of both working together in tandem.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, I don't know, it's one of the things I get kind of hyped up about. It's just one of those things that we've lost. We need to get it back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, okay, so in the story, though, Matthew, the first thing he does is he throws this big feast, you know, presumably in honor of Jesus. That's at least kind of the way it, I would guess it would go, right? And we could say that all his friends are there, tax collectors, sinners, and I, I don't know, maybe that's fair or maybe that's unfair. Maybe he just sort of sent out an invitation. It's very general and they just happen to be the only ones that showed up. I don't know. But then we're going to see, they're they're not really the only ones that are there. They're just the only ones that are really participating. But this is, uh, I I don't know, and I know you're going to relate well to this, Samuel. This is a very important quality of, we could say, God, or we could say Jesus. The outcast, the downcast, the marginalized, the stranger, the widow, the orphan, etc., all of that. There's almost a magnetic quality to their relationship. Those are the ones that are drawn to God, are drawn to Jesus. They represent, uh, how, how do I say it, like, like their lives. They're like a physical manifestation of injustice, what, what, it, what it leads to, what it looks like. And God and Jesus are all about justice. And it's important for us to see this also because, well, and I should say, it's important for us to see it individually in our own personal lives, forget about everybody else. But then it's also important for us to see it because we think of ourselves as one body, the church, that kind of thing. The question we should ask are these same types of people, the outcast, the downcast, the marginalized, the stranger, the widow, the orphan, are they drawn to us like a magnet because if they're not it probably means we're doing something wrong yeah and also like with
1: you saying that god has this very unique and special inclination towards those groups of people if and i'm speaking from personal example that i don't do this enough in my own life but if if we are Choosing not to make interactions with those people and serving them a regular part of our lives, could we say that we're missing out on experiencing God in some unique way through his association with those people
0: groups? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that, I mean, that's a resounding yes. Yeah. So back in this story, Jesus. In spite of their sometimes unattractive words or behavior, Jesus is quite clearly calling the scribes and Pharisees the well and the righteous. And I know we've already talked about in the podcast, and we're just we're saying it again. We've got this preconceived ideas of the Pharisees and the scribes as the bad guys. Some of them are, but they're not all. And and even Jesus here is, is, in his little story, he's making them out to be, you know, the well and the righteous. So, we just need to see it for what it is. Are all Pharisees good, Samuel? Nope. Are all Pharisees bad? No. No. But these particular ones, <laughs> they seem to be bothered by this whole associating with the rabble stuff that's going on, right? <laughs> they didn't want the the sin and the impurity of these people uh how do you say it transferring to them and now they can't be completely blamed for this i mean you know they're they're holding up a standard and that's not always a bad thing but it is getting in the way of them seeing you know people for what they are and and the other thing that we need to kind of notice in this story if if you're reading it it doesn't say it explicitly, but you get the, the the feeling that the reason that they're bothered that he's hanging out with these people is because they really want Jesus to be hanging out with them. Again. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying that we've, you and
1: I have learned separately in other studies that there's this nonspecific iteration within the language implying that. The Pharisees had this expectation that Jesus was going to come over and sit and dine with them, that because he was in their camp theologically about God, the kingdom, Messiah, that he was going to
0: come to them and spend time with them. Yeah. And again, we're going to see plenty of contention between Jesus and the Pharisees and whatever, but it's just important to note hey, they actually were like, dude you should be hanging out with us. Come on (laughs) over, right? It's just important to see it. But then again, think of what Matthew does here, that one little extra bit that he adds. He uses the phrase, go and learn. He could have just said, ouch. (laughs) Because that, uh, okay, these guys just got tagged. Somebody, you know, like hand them a hanky. They just got tagged. The phrase, on one hand, suggests that there is a misunderstanding. That part's easy. Go and learn. Obviously, you're not understanding something. And that this misunderstanding needs to be corrected. But here's the key. If you look at some of the other writings from this time period, this is something that you would expect to come out of the mouth of a master to his students. And Jesus is saying this to the best educated in the land. And we don't even have any evidence that Jesus had any of this, you know, further adult-like education or whatever. So this this is really, really bold. Mm -hmm. But it's also a recurring theme. It's the one that we're going to see between Jesus and the Pharisees a lot. The Pharisees are great at following the law. And I'm just going to say it out loud. That is actually a good thing. But they aren't good at actually seeing or getting or understanding the deep, deeper meaning and purpose of the law, either laws individually or the law as a whole. And of course, that's a bad thing. They just, they always seem to lose it or miss it when we start talking about justice, mercy, love, and et cetera. And, and the point is, uh, when we start talking about, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, it's saying that mercy has to supersede other legal imperatives, like sacrifice. And we know that in its original context, God isn't saying, I don't want sacrifice anymore. That's a misunderstanding. But we want mercy to be a priority over other legal imperatives. So justice, mercy, love, they're the actual goal of those very same legal imperatives. So you can't have this individual thing somehow being more important than the goal that they were designed for in the first place. So it's just—it's so important to see it and and it's good that we're seeing it this early on so that when they have more and more trouble between them later, we'll understand what the real problem is. Yeah, and it's almost...
1: Indicating that you can't have or God doesn't want the sacrifice if there's not mercy there originally anyway. It's almost like a um a directional pathway on how God wants to see this work in a human being. Like he wants you to see and experience and practice out mercy and then the sacrifice has meaning and weight and value to yourself and to God. Yes. And he's saying if you don't have mercy, then what's the point of even bringing a sacrifice? Because the sacrifice is supposed to represent the mercy that you've either expressed
0: or you've received from me. Yeah. Exactly. That's what Israel had gotten wrong so many times over and over. The sacrifice was supposed to be sort of like the end or the culmination of confession, repentance and and uh, retribution possibly, whatever That would be restitution. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, Reconciliation, uh, all of it. And they were short-circuiting all of that. They would just go ahead and worship other gods or you know, do whatever they wanted to do, and then they'd show up and do the sacrifices anyway. And God's like, that's not what I want. That's not what I created them for. I love them when they're done right, but when they're done wrong, I don't want them at all. So, yeah, it's a great picture. It's a... it's one of those things where you go, ah, man, it's too bad we're only focusing on the Gospels because there's so much in the Old Testament we'd like to talk about, but whatever, we'll get there. One day. That's right. I'll have to get some sort of, I'll have to find that fountain of youth so we can actually finish this yeah. podcast. <laughs> All right. So, so uh, again, back to the whole story that Jesus is talking about, uh, and, and it's like a little bitty, tiny, mini parable. So you've got the healthy. Who are they? Well, those are the righteous. Once, and then you have the sick well who are they well those are sinners and like we can actually see it in the sinners and tax collectors well then who's th- who is the physician well that's jesus and now here's the key samuel i'm gonna let you answer this one if you know it what is the cure based on what i know of the message of the gospel is it would be repent it is repentance And Luke actually says it. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Hmm. That's what they're called. And that's going to be another important thing for us to see. Jesus is making the target of his mission clear. It's the sinners. This is important for us to keep in our minds as we go. He wants them to know the love of God. That's a, a certain thing, a for sure thing. But... What does Jesus require of them? Repentance. We've got to see that. Turning from walking their own way, doing what they want to do, they're elevating their own will above God's, all of that, they got to turn back to walking in God's ways. And for Jews, because remember, Jesus is Jewish, the people he's talking to are Jewish, everybody's Jewish right now. This had a very clear and unambiguous meaning. Keep the law, even the whole Torah. It's very clear. That's Jesus' message here. It's important we see it. Mm-hmm. All right. So he's, you know, as we've said before, he's poking the bear a little bit. Let's see what he does next. Uh, now we're going to move to Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 and 15. The book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 18 to 20 and Luke chapter 5 verses 33 to 35. And I think this time we'll just uh, we'll switch over and we'll read from Mark. Mark 2:18. Now, John's disciples, that would be John the Baptist. And the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, "Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. So, we got John, the John the Baptist disciples and Pharisees. They're all fasting for some reason. Now, within first century Judaism, you had all kinds of fasts—fasts fasts that were associated with their annual calendar. Uh, you had some national fasts that were called for different reasons, um, different private fasts, things that people would do on their own, or sometimes they they were still private, but they would try to do them as a group together, like what we see here: John's disciples or Pharisees' disciples. It's, it's it's a type of private fast, but there's a group of people doing it together.
1: And real quick, are, are we suggesting that this is a break from the previous story, that this is now a separate account that's being talked about within the gospel writers?
0: You mean like have they left Matthew's party? Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I guess my first thought is no, but... I could very easily be swayed in the other direction. So on a, I, you know what? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. It's a really good <laughs> question. Yeah. No, it's good. It's good. Now, here's this really interesting thing though, Samus. So we're talking about, you know, these guys are fasting, these guys are not fasting. What's going on? Okay, we gotta take a sidestep here for a second. In Judaism in general, they have this idea that celebrations, in certain circumstances, celebrations were to take precedence over mourning, like grieving mourning. And you could even say it if we were going to pick some events that we can relate to, like a wedding would take precedence over a funeral, which, I mean, that sounds weird, right? How do you even control your mourning or whatever? Yeah. But the mourning was supposed to be suspended in favor of Celebration. And you can, you, you kind of can make sense of it when you go, but wait a second, God is all about life and goodness and whatever. So we too should put priority on the good celebratory things as opposed to, you know, mourning and grieving. But I, I, I just, I try to imagine if I was in that situation, I don't know what I would do. Just, it seems totally weird. But anyway, I'm saying it just so you know that it exists because it kind of relates to the picture Jesus is painting here. Think about it. John the Baptist disciples. Can you think of any reason that they would have had to be, let's just say, mourning right at this moment, Samuel?: uh, Well, their master has just fairly recently been imprisoned.: Exactly. So there you go. We go, all right, so maybe they're fasting, maybe maybe that's their thing, and we're picking on the idea of mourning only because Jesus is the one that brought up the wedding, okay? Now the Pharisees, they also may have had reasons to mourn. Can you think of anything for them, Samuel? Well, I know that the way that they whole op-
1: the way that their whole group operates is in response to their people group being in exile because yeah. of disobedience from the law. Yeah. So maybe there's this perpetual state of mourning with how their association with the land that God promised them and having this Roman oppression over them makes them grieve because it's not the way that
0: God intended it for it to be. Yeah, those are great examples. So the sin of the nation, which is, that's a problem. The Roman occupation, that's a problem, right? But now stop for a second. Jesus' disciples, did they have any reason to be mourning right now? Oh, where
1: some some of them were formerly... John the Baptist's disciples. Exactly. And some of them aligned themselves within the Pharisaic camp previously too.
0: Yeah. So so and I mean we're not saying we know that all of this is true but we're just trying to come up with well what could they have been, you know, fasting for? And and Jesus's disciples have all the exact same reasons. John the Baptist's arrest, Israel the nation, the uh, sin and Roman occupation, all of it. But because the bridegroom, Jesus, is there, they were to choose celebration over mourning because bridegroom of Israel is there. They're, they're in some sense, it's like they're living this, let's call it three-year wedding celebration. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a celebration. Uh, so so that much, I think, it's, it's an, a very interesting picture that Jesus is bringing in this whole idea of the wedding versus the, the fasting and all of that. that that's it's an interesting thing. But just quick, Samuel, do you remember back in John? Uh, I actually, I went and had to go look. John 3.29. John the Baptist called himself... The friend of the bridegroom. Yeah, the friend of the bridegroom. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So. You know, that picture of Jesus as the bridegroom, I'm sure we'll talk more about that as we go, uh, but that's that's kind of what we're getting here with this little block of uh, interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. Yeah, and may I say, what an audacious
1: striving within the life of someone's faith, in this case, the whole Jewish faith, to seek to try to prioritize responding in celebration and worship when there's also an opportunity to respond in mourning and grieving, not, not suggesting that it's right to ignore your emotional health and to give space to grieve and mourn and all those things. But when, you know, the world is so chock full of things to mourn over and to grieve over and that's the natural response. It's just, it's a very higher calling to find those opportunities to celebrate instead of mourn. So
0: I think that's a application right there. Yeah. Samuel, do you remember when they had the, t- the tabernacle all built and they were getting Aaron and his sons and trying to prepare the priests, uh, what do we call it, consecration, ordination, whatever they were doing, right? Do you remember what happened when a couple of guys brought in some strange fire? Uh, God said it's time for you to go <laughs> they died yeah he literally killed them fire from the 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 altar and do you remember Aaron he's their dad right and he was not allowed to mourn they had to be carried out and he had to continue his job he wasn't allowed to mourn until it was all over and his response to that was Moses said hey why aren't you eating this stuff you're supposed to be eating and he said it it wouldn't be right I don't have the right attitude because he you know I think he was feeling (laughs) feeling the morning but remember that was that's a crazy story Mm -hmm. you can find a much clearer and accurate telling of that story in Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 through 20. Thank you very much. And so that's just another picture of, yeah, they're called to do what we would think of as just crazy outlandish things for God's sake. You know, That's I how
1: you set yourself apart and how you make yourself a kingdom of priests to the rest of the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy, crazy. <sighs> so, okay. So back in the text, uh, Jesus is actually going to lay a couple of parables on them. Nice. And I'm excited about these because I think they don't mean what people think they mean. I mean, Let me rephrase that. They mean what people wouldn't expect them to mean. I don't know what I mean. Let's go find <laughs> out. <laughs> Let's go find out. Uh, so Matthew chapter nine, verse 16, Mark chapter two, verse 21, and Luke chapter five, verse 36. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read from Mark. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment if he does the patch tears away from it the new from the old and a worse tear is made now remember when you asked have we changed the the venue did we leave the party or whatever i, I guess i'm kind of thinking they didn't because to me i feel like these two parables are actually providing deeper insight into what was behind their original questions, the ones, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why do your disciples not fast? I kind of feel like these parables, in some sense, answer those questions. So let's find out what I'm talking about. Uh, Jesus has, in some sense, already answered their questions directly, kind of, and now He wants them to see and understand a bigger picture of what it is he is even doing, just generally. So they're not understanding that Jesus is, uh, you could say, doing Torah or being Torah better than any of their current understanding allows them to do. And so he's going to try to help them see it. Now, an important thing, I just got to get this out. Neither of these parables, the one that we're looking at now, the one that's going to follow, neither one of these is somehow pitting Judaism and Torah against Christianity and grace. This is a really common thinking and interpretation of these parables. It's nowhere in view here. That is completely anachronistic. You like that word, Samuel? Yeah, or in Samuel's... (laughs) Greensburg lingo, it's out of order. That's right. They're taking something of a later time, a later thinking, a later understanding, and they're trying to lay that back over the top. It's just out of time. And it makes no sense here. And it would be especially troublesome if that's what you thought it meant when you got down to Luke 5.39. We'll see that when we get there. But here's the thing. These parables, they're similar to some things that already exist in Jewish Uh, writings, parables, proverbs, whatever you want to call it, they already exist. And that's another thing that I guess we should say out loud. I think so many of us get this idea that Jesus, he was saying things that no one had ever seen or heard or thought of before. He was doing things unimaginable. Nope.
1: That would make him an
0: alien. (laughs) Yeah, he was doing things that already existed. He, He was, in some sense... He was meeting them exactly where they were at, which is, we talk about that all the time. That's what he's doing here, and it's important that we see it. So, let's see. What have I got? Uh, so, So, let's start with the new piece of unshrunk cloth, or the patch, all right? Here's the part where I think people, we just don't naturally go here, but these parables and proverbs that already exist... We already know what they meant and what they were talking about, and because these are so similar, it makes perfect sense that he would be saying the same thing, just trying to get them to see and understand. So the unshrunk cloth, the patch, that is new teaching or interpretation. Now, that probably feels a little bit weird. It doesn't say anything about teaching and interpretation, but it's likely that they're going to understand this quickly. And, and completely. Now, interestingly, when Luke is trying to tell the story, I don't know if, he, if he's like accidentally kind of messing it up a little bit or he really just wants to add a new twist and, and make it say something new and different. Luke adds that this new patch, this new piece of cloth is actually torn from the new garment. That's also really interesting because Samuel... If you have a piece of cloth, a new piece of cloth or a new garment, and you tear something from it, what have you just done? You've kind of just wrecked its value and its quality. Yeah. You ruined the new thing trying to fix the old thing. And, of course, we know from the parable that's not going to work either. Right? So the new thing, there's a sense in which Luke is suggesting that, look, the new thing is better received as a whole not torn. So the new teaching, the new interpretation, you need to get it as a whole. Now the old garment, okay, this is someone that's already been taught. So there is existing teaching, existing interpretation. And that education, we could even say, it's kind of like the education has worn them and, and and they continue to kind of wear that education like a garment, right? Kind of see where I'm headed there? Mm-hmm. And now what we don't talk about here explicitly is, is this new garment, and, and this would be someone who hasn't been taught. So instead of trying to patch an old one, what if you just made a whole new one? Well that would be one who hasn't been taught, they're still new that can actually receive this new teaching, this new interpretation as a whole. So the old garment, well what's going to happen? You put something new on it, it's going to start to shrink, the old garment's going to tear. So what that means is the old not the old student, but the the student with some existing education, they're going to reject this new teaching. And we could say they're going to be torn buy it. You got the picture in your head? You're seeing that? Yeah. Yeah. So Luke adds that this, that the old and the new, they also won't match. You'll be walking around with this two-tone thing that just doesn't actually look cool. You know what I mean? But imagine that in your head. Imagine with teaching. If you've got two kinds of teaching going on in your head, they're not going to match. It's going to be Terran, right? This, it makes sense. So the, the overall point here is that students that already have understanding, well, they're not going to be willing to accept this new teaching or this new interpretation, uh, at least not easily. It's really not going to be of value to them in the long run. And in fact, given the story, it may cause damage. It may cause more harm than good. And so... Just real quickly, we could say that the old garments would be the scribes and the Pharisees, the new garments would be like these disciples, or even we could probably stretch it a little further and go people like the tax collectors and sinners, those that haven't been, you know, really immersed in the teaching. But you try to to teach the the old guard, they're going to get upset. You try to teach the new guys and they're going to be like a sponge and just soak it all up. Now, if I'm a listener right now, and I'm thinking about this corner
1: that the Pharisees and the scribes are in right now with their existing knowledge, doesn't seem like they are in a great spot of being in a place to receive, you know, this new life of the kingdom message that Jesus is proclaiming. So exactly, I would I would be asking a question, well, How can the Pharisees and the scribes be able to receive this, you know, the new teaching or the new wine or the new garment? Like,
0: I I hope we get to that. Yeah. Well, we are going to talk about it. We're going to wait until after we finish the other one. We'll talk about it a little bit. Um, and, and, And what you're asking is really, really important. It's a key because think about it. There's a sense in which the people listening to this podcast are in that same boat. Some of them listening might be going, "Man, this is just not what I've heard. This can't be right." Right? And there'll be some who are listening who are going, "Man, you know, I kind of heard some other people talking about stuff and I don't know, I guess it was okay, whatever. But all of a sudden, this makes sense, you know?" So, mm-hmm. so we've got that dynamic happening right here as we're listening. But let's go ahead and do the other parable and then we'll talk a little bit a little bit about your question at the end. Okay. So, uh the next bit is Matthew 9:17. Mark 2.22 and Luke 5.37-39. Uh, Luke seems to add just a little extra information, so I'm going to go ahead and do his. Uh, it says this, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Okay, so first, let's go ahead and make the connections, just so we can kind of see it. The new wine, okay, that's going to be the new teaching or new interpretation. The old wineskin well, that's going to be the guy who's already been taught. He's already got a bunch of stuff in his head, and let's just say it makes sense to him. Now, the new wineskins, those are going to be the ones who haven't yet been taught. They're not quite as set like concrete. They're, they, they're, there's still some flexibility there, they're still new. And then, of course, the old wine, well, that is the, the current existing teaching or interpretation. We, we call it old, like old wine, but whatever. So, so that's how all those things kind of line up. And then the same sort of summary. Students that already have understanding, okay, they're not going to accept this new teaching or this interpretation, at least not easily. It's not really going to be of value to them in the long run. And as we said before, it could cause damage. And here's the, the, this is why this one is a little bit different than the one about the carments. The older students, the, the older wineskins, they're going to prefer the taste of what they already know. And, and this is important because it is actually good. Now, I know that some people, they're listening to the podcast and they're going, yeah, but my translation says that the old is good enough. It makes it sound like they're not really caring or looking for something else, which is, it's true, but it it sort of takes the edge off of the idea that it is actually good. We're not saying that the old wine is bad and the new wine is good. We're saying the old wine is good and the new wine is better. It's important that we get that uh, distinction, right? We're not saying that old wine is bad. If, if the old wine is good, you can understand why they have no desire to try the new. And now we, okay, we're uh, 21st century America, whatever. We know that this isn't really sufficient. We know that the old wine, the old teaching, whatever, it's not really enough But again, it doesn't mean that it's not good. It's just that there's something better. And now here's the big kicker, like back to your question. So what do we do with that? What do we do? Now, and and if I could just say, it is also possible that some people's old wine actually is bad. In this case, Jesus is talking to scribes and Pharisees and everything that they're gaining are discerning from the Torah, the law, etc. There are some people, they have w- their old wine, and it actually is bad because they don't have any understanding at all. They're just making stuff up. So that's a thing. And we can't act like that doesn't exist, but it could also be that they do have something good, they're just not interested in your new thing. So here's the deal: for us, and, and, and I mean, all Christians. We need to strive to not let this be true in our lives. And and it's it's this two-pronged attack. On one hand, we have to work to gain understanding, the best understanding that we can come up with. And we need to guard that understanding ferociously. We can't just be, just going with every whim, every which way, uh, what is that, on the, on the waves, tossed to and fro. We can't be doing mm-hmm. that. We have to seek understanding and guard it. And somehow, at the same time, we must remain open to new teaching. And when we hear it, we have to test it well. Some things are going to sound good. And then when we test them, we're going we're gonna to have to end up saying, eh, no, not for me. Some things you're just going to know right away. Yeah, that's a new teaching, all right, but it's also kind of just garbage, not interested. But we have to remain open to really, because how are you ever going to grow? How are you going to learn the next new thing? Uh, especially if God is somehow like uh, bringing it to you on a silver platter, you've got to be open. If it survives the testing, then you've got to be willing to incorporate it not allow it to tear your garment not allow it to burst your wineskin and that's a trick what i'm calling th- this is a real trick but we've got to you know th- this is this is who we got to be now how does that relate to your question you know does it answer it do you want to rephrase it what, what where are we at i think you addressed it well
1: and it it has led me to want to say A lot of comments that maybe aren't directly associated with that original question, but I hope will complement the original question well. Um, The first thing, I feel like that you're saying whenever you're suggesting that we as the reader are getting this hint that the old wine or the old teaching, it's insufficient compared to the new wine. I feel like that is a similar picture that we get in the book of Hebrews whenever the writer is comparing You know the the priestly system that started with Moses and Levi in the Torah, compared to Jesus as the superior high priest. Oh, right. Uh, It's it's not suggesting that the priestly system that God ordained here on earth with Israel was bad. Like no, like He created it, He established it. But in comparison to the heavenly realm, to the realm where you know, the the aspect of sin and death and corruption are not affecting those dynamics. Of course, it is more superior because it's it's perfect. Uh, And in the same way, like the what the what Jesus is saying is that that old wine like that is God's expressed will given to humanity on Earth uh, through the Torah and that is good because it came from him right but that's that's different than what the rabbis paint like what the kingdom and the world to come is going to be like when god is and messiah are going to give the uh, they call it the supernal torah or the heavenly torah yeah it's it's like sh- showing the true uh unabashed wisdom that god intended that is not being hindered by corruption and death and sin that gets in the way of us experiencing it fully yeah and Jesus is seeming to su- you know he's suggesting that like that that new torah that supernal torah that that comes through me it starts with me and it's going to end with me whenever you know I re- redeem all those things and so that those things are going through my mind um another thing
0: wait let I me that, let me say because oh, yeah, this yeah. is so good. Your point is fantastic because we are so quick to talk about, ah, the New Covenant. We're a part of the New Covenant. Yay, it's so great. Okay, if you're going to say that the Torah and the law is bad, you really do not understand the New Covenant because, Samuel, what is it that is written on our minds and on our hearts under the New Covenant? The law is written. The law, the Torah. You can't say it's bad. It's the actual answer for it. just whatever. So anyway, go ahead. What's your next thing? No. Um. I I hope that Jesus
1: describing this story uh, with the difficulty of someone receiving new wine and being a new wine skin when they have the old. When they say that the old is good, I hope that that evokes some empathy for particularly the Jewish people for not accepting you know, currently in this day and age majority accepting Yeshua as the yeah. Messiah because, you know, they have been so staunched in the, you know, traditional, classic, orthodox Jewish faith, which is good. And I think God is behind all of that. Yeah. I just think that it's when when they have this cultural handing down of the tradition of God speaking to an entire nation of people, you know, Physically, geographically, within a region and space and time, like it—it it makes it difficult to hear these new things that—that uh, that actually add to the original story. But to them, it doesn't—it doesn't feel like an addition. It feels like a total replacement, maybe. In that moment in time. Right. Um, And the the last thing, um, I don't know if people like this song or not. Uh, I know that my church sings it. Uh, Hillsong Worship has a song called New Wine. And I just think it's funny that the song, the lyrics say, like, it's asking Jesus. The the, the lyric goes, Jesus, make new wine out of me. But based on this lesson, I feel like it should be saying, Jesus, make me a new wineskin. Yeah. like yeah. we should be praying like God, like turn my psyche, my psychology, my thinking, like make me a new canvas so that I can be able to receive this new teaching that you want me to have rather than like the new wine itself. Like yeah. we need to make ourselves available as learners
0: yeah. to receive it better. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that is so good. We we need to be like the new wine skin and, you know, I'm, I'm sure, I mean, we can, it doesn't have to be wine, whatever you've tasted, you know, but pizza, for example, mm, there's really good pizza. pizza and there's really nasty pizza, right? <laughs> and you, you don't want that. So you don't want to be a fresh new wine skin, but then at the same time, put nasty bad wine into it, right? Yeah. You want that good wine. So yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah. It's Good, Good stuff. Good stuff. You know, I think we're going to do Samuel. I think we're gonna, I think we're going to kind of do that uh, uh, cliffhanger thing again. We're going okay. to take them to a new area, talk about it a little bit, and know that we have to pick it up on the next episode. So all right, so let's, let, let's go ahead and talk about it. We're going to move now to Matthew chapter 12, one and two. Uh, Mark chapter 2, 23 and 24, and Luke chapter six verse one and two. I'm going to read from Matthew. So here we go. At that time. Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Okay, so many crazy things going on here, Samuel. Number one, why are they walking through grain fields on a Sabbath? (laughs) And nobody's <laughs> complaining about that. I mean, there were all kinds of travel restrictions on the Sabbath. So that's a weird thing. Um, why would they even be traveling? Forget the grain fields. What, why are they traveling at all on a Sabbath? And then when they say it's a Sabbath, are we saying that maybe this was like Friday right at sundown? They were just like like working their way into Sabbath? It doesn't sound like that. Or was this full on Saturday? Were they just <laughs> out walking? I don't know. And then, are we supposed to think that the Pharisees are actually walking with them? Or are the Pharisees, like, standing at the edge of the grain field, waiting for them to show up, seeing them pick the grain? Or I mean, I don't know. These are all weird things. This is a strange, strange story. And why? Why did the disciples do it? Whether it's the Sabbath or not, I mean, isn't, like, just walking through and grabbing grain out of some guy's field, isn't that something to be looked down on? I, I, I don't know. And, and maybe not. Maybe this is something they did it all the time. I mean, this was 2,000 years ago and a half a world away. I don't know. Maybe they just didn't think anything of it. So let's experiment, Samuel. Deuteronomy, chapter 23, verse 25. Read that for me.
1: If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing
0: grain. Huh. Well, that kind of makes it sound like you can just eat whatever you want out of your neighbor's field. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, though. First century Judaism, Israel, that wasn't quite the way they understood it. This was more for workers. If you were a worker in somebody's field, you could pluck grain and eat. Definitely, that's something that they sort of, you know, derived over time, but at least that kind of makes sense to us. More so than just anybody grabbing anybody's food anytime they wanted. So in first century Judaism, what they're doing here, if it was a Deuteronomy 23, 25 kind of thing, that actually would have been thought of as more like theft. So that's kind of weird. But then Matthew says that they're hungry. So what's going on? Are they kind of, uh, have they become impoverished? I mean, they've been traveling around a little bit. Maybe, maybe they took some money and now they're out. Maybe this is the only way they're going to eat. Or maybe because it's Sabbath and they haven't made any preparations, maybe they have no hope of a Sabbath meal. So they're just grabbing a little something on their way in. Or, here's another possibility, Samuel, Uh, let's go read this for me, Leviticus chapter 23 verse 22.
1: And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge Nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God.
0: Oh. So, maybe we need to stop for a second and figure out where we're at in the year. Passover happened not long ago. Pentecost is coming up. So, in between this time, some of the fields of grain would, in fact, be ripe for harvest. So it is possible that when they say they're walking through the grain fields, they didn't say it explicitly, but it's possible that these are the edges, the corners that have been left for people exactly like them. They're sojourning. They're in a position where they can't take care of themselves, and so they pull some from what this guy has left over in his field. Now, Hmm. we don't know that, but it's possible. It's interesting. Yeah. The thing is, and I'm just going to say it again. This whole story is very, very strange to me. And whatever is really happening here, the point is, okay, the Pharisees didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. They decided to confront Jesus and, I, you know, I guess his disciples also. But notice they're confronting Jesus <laughs> over the disciples violating the Sabbath. It didn't say Jesus did it. It says they were the ones plucking and rubbing and eating the grain, right? And it's important because a master with disciples, a teacher with students, they would have been held responsible for the actions of their students. So they confront Jesus for what his disciples have done. Kind of makes sense, right? But their stance is, their stance is that what the disciples have done is a violation of the law. It's a violation of Sabbath, and this is really important because what's the penalty for violating the Sabbath, Samuel? I think it's, you're going to be put to death. Yeah, it's death. And so what they're seeing, what they, they perceive as a real violation, this is really, 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 really important to them. And there was one other thing I wanted to mention. Just think about this, Samuel. If, if uh, we live in America, so uh, what if somebody, or how about let's Kentucky? What if somebody in Kentucky came out with a law and they said, hey, if you do X or Y or whatever it is, if you do this, penalty is death. Well, would you not like to know very explicit and and super detailed information about what exactly it is that qualifies as this thing that, that results in the death penalty? Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So developing all of these strict guidelines that the Pharisees and, and uh, every, well, let's just, just say everyone in Israel has, we could look at that and go, oh, those guys were just always making all this crazy stuff up. Well, maybe. But it's also very understandable when you think of it pr- from the perspective of you need the detail to make sure that you can help keep people out of trouble. Right? Yeah. 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 So, you Um, may have things to say, but I'm just letting you know, this is where we're going to hang the cliff, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just wanted
1: to add with the Pharisee's stance that what the disciples done is a violation of the law. Yeah. Um, I don't want people to get this idea in their heads that this is like a unfounded claim based on how Judaism worked in their day, and it, it starts all the way back... In Exodus, whenever you know God rescues them out of Egypt, and He marries them at Sinai, um, I think it, like the first mention of like not doing labor on the Sabbath is um, Exodus chapter twenty, verse ten. Um, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male, or your female servant, even your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Um, And I know that in rabbinic thought, um, you can look these up, these references on your own if you're listening to this, there are some instances where there's like explicit mentions of what type of labor is counted as violating the Sabbath. I know that like plowing and reaping is present in Exodus chapter 34, verse 21, uh, gathering wood, that's Numbers 15, verse 32, even kindling a fire in Exodus 35, verse 3. But the majority of those descriptions happen within the oral law, and that's like the rabbis sitting down and trying to make sense of what God has given to his people yeah. and to make, make sense of it for everyday life. And in yeah. rabbinic tradition, there's actually there's 39 different verbs of like action that are yeah. prohibited. I, and in Jewish thought, they call it 40 minus one. Yeah. Um, and the the rubbing of grain in between the hands is, is found within that list of things. So I just wanted to add that cultural thing within there to say that it was very established within their oral giving of the law that like, doing the work required to pull yeah. the green off of a head uh, yep. of that plant was considered laborious
0: for them. Yeah. It's explicit and unambiguous. And, and that's, that is our cliffhanger because here we got Jesus with his disciples and they have, and, and we're, I'm emphasizing that the Pharisees think that it's a violation because I'm later going to show that Jesus agrees. We'll get there in the next episode, but the point is the cliffhanger. Here they are. They have just violated the Sabbath. <laughs> what are we gonna do?
1: Yeah, that's a, that should be bomb dropping right now to hear. Wait, they actually did violate the Sabbath. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's that's a great cliffhanger. Yeah, so hang on to that one for a week. <laughs> Bye bye <laughs> Okie dokie Most Thank you for listening to the Okie Doki Most Podcast. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you're notified when our episodes release on Sundays at 7 PM so that you never miss an episode. We would really appreciate it if you would also leave us a review on your podcasting platform, letting us know how this content is positively impacting your life. Our podcast is now available on all podcasting platforms, so please make sure you check us out on your mobile device. You can also visit our official website at www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, if you have any questions or comments we'd love to hear from you, please feel free to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we hope and pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.